Friday. We made it again, boy. It's Friday. We've made it again. Oh, well. Oh, do we have a sock dollager for you tonight? <laughs> do they use that expression down in Jamaica, sock dollager? They got a couple of others. Very few of which I can use on the air tonight, but they're good. They're real ripe. Oh, red sails in the sunset, far out on the sea. Oh, carry my loved one home safely to me. Oh, gee, it's so sad. She sailed at the dawning. All day I've been blue. Red sails in the sunset. Oh, I'm trusting in you. La cha da cha cha cha. La ta ta da ta tee. Hey, when you're pressed to the wall, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna conduct a scientific survey tonight. And uh, if you would like to be part of a scientific survey, stick around very closely because uh, this is something very important to me because I'm working in conjunction tonight with a famous scientific survey corporation. It's very important that we know this because it's going to be incorporated into some very interesting and uh, highly indicative literature which is about to be burst over the heads of the American public, right? Okay, now when you're pressed to the wall, like say you're in the shower, I want you to think about this, Corny, you're in the shower, see, all by yourself, and the water is coming down. Do you ever have an urge to sing? Well, now, here comes the important question. You're pressed to the wall, you're all by yourself, you're in this room, you're in the john, we'll say, and it's got all these, these tiled walls, and there's this tremendous echo effect, and, and the, the urge comes over you to sing. What do you sing? Have you noticed that you almost always sing the same song? Now, come on, be honest. You may switch to another one, but the first thing that you think of is usually the same song. You usually sing the same one. Now, now if we think this is highly significant, and we are working... In, uh, we're working in cooperation with a highly significant testing organization, and we would like to know what song it is you sing when you're pressed to the wall. Now, this is not a trivial thing. Don't think for a minute. No, 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 no. Shepard has not sold out. Shepard is doing this because he's going to show the basic vapidity of the American heart. <laughs> when I'm pressed to the wall, I sing, Red sails in the sunset, far off in the sea, oh, carry my loved one. Home safely to me. Oh, isn't that, isn't that a sentimental? I, it, it, doesn't that kind of get you right down here? Right down there where the glands are? Right where it lives? You know, speaking of sentiment, would you please bring me a little gamutlik background? Oh, that's fine. And tonight, we salute a man of the century, another fighter against the vast forces that are surrounding all of us, from which none of us can escape. And tonight, we salute a citizen of München, Munich, Germany. For any of you who have ever been to München, you know what a medieval city this is. 
You know, uh, the little, the little conditorai, the little, uh, the little mages, what go singing in the night under the window of the plaza. All night long they sing at the Hofbräuhaus. house. Ach, du lieber Augustin, Augustin, and the beer flows like water, Wasser, down the great rivers to the sea. <laughs> and here's a note from Germany. German potato dumplings have long been bad news to dieters. Saturday, they threatened to become an aviation hazard. Helmut Winter told newsmen that he plans to use the baseball-sized German dumplings to try to stop airplanes and helicopters from flying low over his house as they approach or leave the nearby Munich airport. Now, that's an interesting airport. I'll never forget the first time I flew into the Munich airport, lying out there below. We came in low, and there were a couple of gliders sailing in the air around our great airliner as we swooped down on runway three. We came in over a long, low, concrete row of Luftwaffe barracks that had been left over from a previous little bit of excitement that happened in the Waterland. And then, as we landed and taxied around, I could see the front of that, that Munich airport. You know, the, the, uh, the administration building? You could see little pockmarks all over the front of it where other potato dumplings had hit it in a long gone and past battle against other airplanes that had flown over. <laughs> I like the idea of this guy throwing dumplings at helicopters as they go over. He said, Helmut says he is building a catapult to launch the mushy missiles at low-flying aircraft. He said that cold dumplings will be fired by a crossbow device through a long pipe mounted on wheels in his radish garden. <laughs> I mean, the idea of having a radish garden has certain pizzazz in itself. Earlier, the embattled householder had advertised in a local Munich newspaper for a solution. Here's where we get really interesting. Ach, to labor. Aircraft weapons with sufficient ammunition are required for the restoration of peace and order in Western Munich's airspace, he advertised. And he said that he got offers all over from sympathetic Germans. And they offered to sell him machine guns. And uh, here's an interesting little offer. One, a complete multiple flak gun with 9,000 rounds of ammunition. And here is the final capper, the soupçon. A second World War 88 millimeter gun with, quote, an experienced crew of former sergeants to man it. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, where are they hiding an 88? That takes quite a trick. With a completely experienced crew. Of sergeants yet. No private sergeants. They know how to do it. Can't you see yourself coming in over the airport on your red carpet service flight into Munich and suddenly... all around you. It's Helmut and his friends. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, speaking of flak, I... I <laughs> oh, 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 uh, is, there, is there anybody out there? Just one guy. I want to hear one kid out there, and I want to hear... No, no, one kid. It's got to be a kid. I want to hear one kid, and I want to hear what he sings when he's trapped in the shower all by himself and he feels the urge to sing. I want to hear what he sings. 
So any kid out there? And uh, while uh, we're mulling that one over, I'm thinking of Helmut throwing these, uh, these potato dumplings up at helicopters. And I, I don't know whether I should tell you this story. We can secretly deep down inside of us. We're all bloodthirsty. There's no question about it. Uh, there is a little side of us that has fangs. There is a little part of each one of us that is a total carnivore. And uh, believe me, feeds on nothing but red meat. I'll never forget one time I'm in the Army, see? This is when I learned about that. And I'm about, uh, oh, maybe just pushing 18, just beginning to approach 18. And uh, I'm in a company of guys. We're playing around with radar. And the radar is supposed to be anti-aircraft, as you know. It's supposed to pick up high-flying airplanes coming in, low-flying airplanes. But we never saw any airplanes. And uh, we were being trained, working the equipment, and sitting there night after night, playing with the diagrams and playing with the keying system. And it was all abstract. The idea of seeing an airplane on our radar unit was kind of, uh, how shall I put it? It got to be very unreal. And then one afternoon, have you ever fired an anti-aircraft gun, Cornelius? Have you ever been around one when it was being fired? Does it interest you? Oh, come on now. It's a, it's a, uh, it makes a loud noise. I'll tell you, if you, if you, do you like fireworks? Well, you'd like an anti-aircraft gun. I'll tell you, that's, that's the biggest Roman candle you ever saw, Dad. And, and it shoots such pretty lights and all. Well, <laughs> well, we're sitting around the company one day, and we've been, you know, we've been fooling around with this thing for about six months or so. When the orders came through one afternoon for all of us to pack up on a truck, the whole company, every last platoon of our company, and to go down here to Seagirt, right here in New Jersey. Now, uh, I don't know whether any of the uh, senior residents of Seagirt, New Jersey, remember actually seeing this happen, but it, it really did happen right over here on the coastline at Seagirt. whole bunch of us in a truck. We drive down through these long, winding roads, and I'm about to discover something in me that I didn't know I had until this moment. We go down through the winding roads, down along the beach, and there, lying on the beach, were about a half dozen low concrete buildings. And around the concrete buildings, there's all kinds of machinery and equipment all sitting with barbed wire all around it. And uh, among the barbed wire and among the machinery, there's a bunch of GIs, tin hats, all sitting around picking their teeth. We arrived in front of the barbed wire fence. Captain jumps out of the front jeep. He blows a whistle. And all of us are unloaded off the trucks. And we all stand up at attention, you know, company formation front. We've got our rifles, our packs on our back. We've got the tin hats on. We're wearing our gas masks. We're wearing our canteens. Oh, you want to know what I carried in my canteen most of the time? You're supposed to carry water. You know what I carried in my canteen? Water. Well, <laughs> I was innocent and young, you know. And I figured when they told me to carry water, I'd carry water. It wasn't until... Uh, later on, I was in the Army maybe two or three years, and I discovered that the first sergeants carried something else in their canteens. And then I began to discover there was a lot more fun that you could have with a canteen and just drink water with pills in it. And so we all unload. We go in through the, we go in through the, the, the gates of this, this barbed wire entanglement, and it's all big signs that's secret. Stay out. Keep out. Danger. Stay away. No civilians allowed. And we are now in the encampment of an anti-aircraft training battery. And we are about to be trained in firing anti-aircraft guns, 50-millimeter 
anti-aircraft machine guns, those big heavy ones, and we also fired, I think it was a 20-millimeter anti-aircraft battery. These are all technical terms, don't mean anything. We all squatted down on the ground. The sergeant stands up in front of him and says, All right, you guys, you're going to learn how to fire anti-aircraft guns now. And in just uh, 25 minutes by the clock, 25 minutes by the clock, there will be the first target appear over the target area. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. Listen carefully to the coaches. Listen carefully to all these men who are trained in firing anti-aircraft equipment. You are not going to leave here today a trained anti-aircraft battery, but you've got to have some experience in what they sound like and what actually happens here, because we will be working with anti-aircraft batteries from here on in. All right, any questions? All right, men's. All of you over there on the left, you fall out, you go with that corporal. You six over there, you go with that corporal over there. The lieutenant will take the rest of you, and let's get going now. In just 15 minutes, the first target will be over the target area. Well, let me tell you what happened. Flying from the west, an airplane came. I believe it was a B-26. It was a twin-engine bomber. Came flying in from the west. He made a slow turn over the beach at the appointed hour, and attached to the back end of the airplane was a long, slender cord that just trailed on out. Maybe, oh, maybe a hundred yards, about the length of a football field. Behind that airplane was a big windsock. It is our target. And on the target are two German iron crosses. He just went, whoa. over the beach. While I am sitting down next to a tough little corporal and two of his buddies and about four guys from my platoon sitting in front of a 50 caliber machine gun. And the corporal is saying, all right, now here's what you do, you men's. I will fire the first rounds to give you some instructions on how this equipment works. You will notice this lever here. This is the safety lever. This is a semi-gas operated weapon, and you'll notice it is belt fed. The belt will be operated by that man to the left. He is called the belt feeder or the ammo feeder. I am going to operate now as the gunner. Watch carefully. This is the trigger. You will hold this. This is, and he's showing us all the things that you worked on at the bottom. And with that, he slowly tilted this 50 caliber machine gun up into the sky. The plane made another big turn. And back he went. They are in contact with the pilot with two-way radio. And then he touched the trigger. <coughs> see arching skyward, higher and higher, and curving off to the left and making a big smoky circle. The tracers. One out of every seven slugs was a tracer. It looked like a great big hose he's shooting up in the air. And the plane just sailed on by, towing that target. And all of us squished down again, deep on our haunch. Oh, was that a scary moment? I'll tell you, the first time you ever hear real big guns firing around you is a, is a moment you'll never forget. Your ears ring. Your head spins. The top of your head just jiggles a little bit. You can feel the ground go, gung, 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 gung. And then the 20s opened up, down to the left, as he made another turn. Gung, 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 gung. Gung, 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 gung. And high up behind the plane, you see, just following him, thin puffs of white and brown and black smoke. Then a piece of the target sailed off and slowly fell into the sea. And then it was my turn to fire. You don't want to hear any more about that, do you? <laughs> oh, no, I'll tell you, it's a terrible feeling. 
<laughs> oh, man. Talk about heavy artillery. This is WOR in New York. Hit the money button, Charlie. Hit it. Hey, he sounds like he's running down. Every night that guy gets slower. Do you notice that he says, ask for Miller High Life, brewed in Milwaukee? <laughs> hey, you know, you think you sing a terrible song in the shower. I, I alternate between Red Sails and the Sunset and this one. My mama done told me, wah, when I was in knee pants, wah, la ta da ta tee tee ta la ta da ta tee tee la ta da yeah, hello, kid. Yeah, what do you sing, kid? Well, that is not a song. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah? All right, now, now let's hear what you sing. Will you start that from the top again, kid? Okay. And sing it loud and clear so I can hear it. Yeah, let's go. China doll, China doll. Oh, I love you, baby. China doll. How's that? That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. Is that what he... I mean, uh, let's see, China Dow. I, I remember that. Uh, let's see. Wait, wait. I better hook this thing up here again. He was very good, you know? Hello, hello, Test. Boy, you knocked me right off the air here. Wait a minute. Hold on to that crowd. There we are. There we are. Hey, he sang that real good, you know? But I, I have this one where I sing... There's another one I sing. It's that thing that... Uh, uh, no, no, I don't sing the Stars and Stripes Forever in the back. Although I sometimes sing something that's almost as bad. Occasionally I sing, Betty Coed has lips of red for Harvard. Betty Coed has eyes of blue for Yale, Rasmataz. Betty Coed has... The rest I can't sing to you because I know another set of lyrics that, uh, because it is late, we cannot discuss. Uh, speaking of uh, commercials, we better get this one out of the way. How about Rover? We have the Rover 2000 TC here tonight. And it's a great automobile. Hey, uh, I saw a Rover in the movies the other night. An old, old Rover two-seater. I mean, a real collector's item. You know one of these old English pictures where the guys all wear Hamburg hats and they're all belonging to Scotland Yard and they're always rushing around in the streets of London? You see these pictures on about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and they were all filmed in 1932, underwater. You know those films? And by George, I saw a Rover two-seater. Uh, which today on the collector's market would be probably worth $5,000. Because in those days, a two-seater was a rich man's car in England. It was a plaything, a toy. And, uh, I mean, they didn't sell many of them. And that beautiful rover came up that long, winding path, and Trevor Howard got out. And Trevor Howard, at that time, was 10 years old. So you know, <laughs> you know what, kind of a, uh, what kind of an age this car was. And if you have any doubts about the Rover being one of the greatest of the old line marks in Europe, I would like to point out that the Rover company built one of the finest bicycles in the 1880s. And they've been building fine cars ever since. This is the Rover 2000 TC. And if you'd like a picture of their two-wheel model uh, that seats two, I mean, tandem, you know, with the, with the big uh, handlebars out in the front, you send your card off to Rover here at WOR, and we'll send you the pictures, huh? You know, when I, when I think about the, that moment, though, firing that 50 caliber gun, I heard an awful story one time uh, about an anti-aircraft battery that was firing just outside of the camp where at one point I was... Incidentally, a lot of guys wrote and told me that, that Camp Wood, that uh, I was stationed at at one point outside of 
of Fort Monmouth was not Camp Leonard Wood. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's Camp Charles Wood. And uh, a guy wrote me a long, detailed history of it and pointed out that I was absolutely right, that it was the slum of Fort Monmouth. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it really was. It was, it was where all the, all the depressed soldiers went and uh, all the casual companies. And it had one other awful connotation. How many guys, how many ex-GIs out there remember this one phrase that, that struck terror into the hearts of every last guy who ever was assigned to a camp that had this designation? P.O.E. You know what is it, the P.O.E.? P.O.E. means port of embarkation, and it means the place where you'd go to get processed, to get sent, you know where. You were on your way. And, all, and, and, and guys used to write stuff over the doors of the Johns and the P.O.E. All ye who enter here, abandon hope. And the, and the Johns would run all night long, and the water would run, and guys would stare into the metal mirrors, and rumors would go up and down the street. We're all going to India. India? Guys, India, what's going on in India? I don't know. And then ten minutes later, another rumor would go sweeping down the street. Hey, did you hear what's happening? The 3162nd is being parachuted into Manila. Manila! Nobody thought of that. But then another rumor would go sweeping down the street. Did you hear what's happened to the 3138th? No. What? The 3138th is being sent to Greenland. Greenland? And another rumor would sweep down the street back and forth. And like, like a field of waving grain, the heads would move back and forth as the winds of rumor and the slow, creeping borer of fear ground away at their root stems. Where? How? What? No. You're kidding. I'll never forget one night, speaking of rumor, I'm out on a night maneuver. Isn't that exciting, night maneuver? Just the idea, night maneuver. And our entire company is down in the swamps of the Everglades. In fact, there were about 25 companies on a big, vast night field maneuver that was supposed to take place over about two... Do you want to hear about, a, uh, about how a night maneuver really works and what happens when soldiers get out in the dark? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everything goes to pieces. Individually, and I, I only read one, one story about the Army or the war that actually illustrated that peculiar chaotic quality that happens when this thing gets underway. Kind of all falls apart. And each individual guy has no idea what's happening. And we're all standing there in the dark one night. We're all dressed for the tropics. We're wearing our tropical gear. We're wearing all of our mosquito netting. And all of us have got insect repellent rubbed all over our faces. And we're about to go into the swamp. We were preparing for swamp warfare. Oh, boy. And I don't know whether you've ever been in a big swamp. They had swamps down in Jamaica, don't they? I don't think there's anything scarier geographically than a swamp. Do you agree with me? And you spend the night in a swamp, and, man, you just don't forget it. And I spent one night in the swamp I will never forget for the rest of my born days. Me and Goldberg. <laughs> Goldberg was my fellow PFC, and Goldberg and I were assigned to a twisted pair telephone line that we were supposed to string over to Company C's command post. We all stood waiting to be loaded on the trucks, 
and each one had been assigned our tasks. Each guy knew exactly what he was to do. And I had a big reel of wire attached to my pack on the back. Goldberg had a field telephone set attached to him. And the two of us were a wire-laying company observation post team. Me and Goldberg. Now, uh, you know what this consists of? You've seen these movies, you know, of Van Johnson. Van Johnson, he's lying in a hole. He's a captain. He's a lieutenant or something. He's the commanding officer. And he's got this telephone that he keeps cranking. And he keeps saying, Charlie Company, Charlie Company here. Charlie Company here calling battalion headquarters. Charlie Company here. And the mortars are going overhead. Well, that is what they call a command post field telephone. And that's strung by wires back to the command post. His boss, the major, is about maybe 200 yards back in the darkness, hiding in his hole, which is a little larger. See, that's the command post, the, <laughs> the company, or maybe even the battalion command post. And he's got about three of these wires coming in. And each guy cranks when he wants to talk to him. Well, Goldberg and I were to lay one of these wires, just a twisted pair of wire from our company to the battalion headquarters, which was maybe uh, 200 yards away. And our company took off into the dark. Clump, 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 clump. And the mosquitoes started to move in. And the heat was coming up from the swamp. And you could smell the dead toads. You could smell that brackish, salty kind of water that they have in swamps. You could smell the mud. You know, the smell of mud is a very distinctive smell. And guys in New York, I mean, we, we, we're so removed from nature here that these really primal... This must have been one of the smells that the dinosaurs smelled. I mean, mud is mud. It must have been exactly the kind of smell that the earliest primitive man smelled as he crawled out of those ancient swamps. And that smell of mud gets stronger and stronger and richer and riper and deeper and rounder as you go further and further into the swamps. And we were following uh, a trail that had been supposedly laid down for us by the advanced scouts of our signal battalion. And it got so dark, so black, so many mosquitoes, that we gradually began to lose track of one another. Until finally, there were just two of us left. So help me, me and Goldberg. And we could hear the others rattling around in the darkness. We could hear an occasional muffled curse. We could hear somewhere the sound of a truck slowly pulling out of mud. And it was all getting further away until finally there was just me and G, Goldberg, hiding in a hole next to a great big cliff that ran up and over to a clump of trees and down again into some more water. I said, hey, Goldberg. Goldberg. He says, yeah. So what are we going to do? He said, I don't know. I said, well, let's wait. Somebody's going to come along. He says, yeah. And off in the distance, you hear another muffled curse. Little did we realize what we were hearing were two other guys in another hole, lost. Hey, Goldberg, I'll go out and see if I can find a command post. You stay here. He says, don't go, don't go. I said, what do you mean, why not? He said, I'm scared. So am I. You come with me. And so the two of us crawled over the top, the lip of the cliff. We are crawling through, I guess it was kind of a path, but not really. It was a small space between two 
beds of quicksand were crawling along. And I've got my wire behind me. I said, Gasser, hey, Gasser. Gasser was in the other team. Hey, Gasser. And I hear somewhere off in the distance, what do you want? I said, hey, Gasser, where's the CP? How the hell should I know? Well, what are we going to do, Gasser? I said, I don't know. Long pregnant pause, we crawl another 30 feet. And high overhead, something arches into the sky, and it goes, it's a star shell. We were supposed to watch for red star shells, and if a red star shell went off, that meant we were under attack. And it goes, this little red thing hangs there from us, like, you know, like a ball from a, from a Roman candle, and just puffs like that, and it floats down a little bit. Gas says, hey, they're after us. And Goldberg says, lay down. We lay there. We lay there for about, oh, I'd say six weeks in the darkness. And about 30 feet away, something started to splash in the water. And it was no person, because it kept going. <coughs> Goldberg said, what's that? I said, I don't know. About 400 yards away, I hear Gasser say, Is that you, Shepard? What are you doing? It's just nothing. I'm laying here. Shut up. Another star shell goes up. It drifts overhead. And now we're starting to get scared. I mean, really scared. What happens if the company commander discovers that nothing's working? We got no phones. Nothing. We've been training for this thing for about a month. And now we're lying in a hole. That thing started to grunt again. And then I heard something slither right next to me. I says, hey, Goldberg, is that you? He says, no. What was it? I said, it sounded like a snake. He says, what? Goldberg was the most city-fied guy I ever knew. His dad owned a delicatessen over on the west side, and the most sneaky thing he had ever seen was the time that a, that a salami got away off the truck. I mean, he, he, was, he was petrified. We're both lying in the dark. That nobody in our orders, nobody ever once in all of our training had ever discussed what happens in the dark if you run into a snake. What do you do in the dark if you run into an alligator? And by George, just about that time, this alligator opened up. Have you ever heard an alligator in the dark? Uh, you haven't? Well, the alligator's mating cry goes a little bit like this. He goes, Then he lies there for a minute. He's waiting to see if anybody's taken the nibble. Then he flaps his tail a little in the mud, just a little bit. You can just, you can just hear that tail. He sounded like he was 30 feet long. We lay there in the dark. I've got the wire on my back. Goldberg has got the field set on his back. Gasser's got his wire on his back. And with him is Edwards, who has a field set too. Nobody moved for about an hour. And then there was a splash. And you could hear the sound of that alligator swimming away. 
And he's gone. And then another star shell goes up. This time, it's a white one. The white one meant that all clear. We're no longer under attack. Move forward. So where are we going to go, Goldberg? We're supposed to go somewhere. So I ain't going nowhere. I said, I ain't either. I ain't going to get lost. I ain't going to get lost in those quicksand. And I heard a whisper somewhere off, maybe 40, 50 feet away. And something crawled past me, right past me. I could see it outlined against the sky. I could see a tin hat. I said, hey, where are you going, Mac? He said, don't bother me. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm looking for the command post. I said, so am I. He said, I don't know where it is. It was supposed to be over here. I said, no, it's supposed to be up over there. He said, oh, get in my way. I've got to go. Crying out loud. I said, let me go with you. He says, no, stay where you are. And he crawled about 20 feet and then turned around and came back. Say, do you guys mind if I ride here with you for a couple of minutes? I said, no. And he sneaks down the hole. Now there's three of us sitting there. And there's just the slight edge of the one beginning to appear now over the eastern horizon, way off in the distance. Another star shell goes up and arches down. And this third guy says, damn it. I said, what's the matter? He said, we got to get going. We can't stay here. I said, but yeah, where are you going to go? He said, I don't know. And then I began to see on his helmet in the vague glint of the dawn a single white bar. It's a first lieutenant. He is one of our officers. And Goldberg sees it at the same time. He puts his head down. He just sits there with his feet up. I sat there looking out across the swamp. And then this guy says, Hey, you guys. Hey, what company are you from? With my, with my quick GI mind, I said, Company M. He says, M Company? I thought you guys were from K. I says, no, we're from Company M. He says, oh, crying out loud. I'm with the wrong company. And over the hill he goes. He was our first lieutenant. He was even more lost than we were. He thought we were from M Company. We were actually from K Company. And we sat for another minute and a half, and Goldberg says, wow. He says, man, that's you's a noodle. I said, what was I going to do? He said, I don't know. Long pregnant pause. Goldberg says, I think he was putting us on. I bet he knew who we were. I says, no. He was lost, too. What do you think he was doing here? He said, I don't know. I bet he was out looking for guys who were goofing off. I said, we're not goofing off. We can't find nothing. But then Gasser, off in the distance, says, hey, you guys. Who is that lieutenant that just went by? I says, keep your head down, Gasser. And then the dawn came up. And somewhere from off to the left, the truck rattled down between two small puddles. And we could see where we were. A couple of palm trees. A little palmetta. Gasser was lying on a sand dune with Edwards. And there were long tracks of where the alligator had gone past us. He had left one swampy lowland and gone across the 
small sandy rise to another. And the sky is laying over us. And it looks so innocent, all of it. We had no idea where we were. It had all gone to pieces. And it hit me. Where was Gregory Peck? I mean, he always runs a company like this. It never happens. I never have seen one movie where all the guys got lost and they just sat in holes and waited. Not one movie. And three hours later, we are all lined up in front of our tents. And the CO, our captain, is walking up and down in front of us. And he is saying, Men, I want to tell you that this was one of the most successful night field maneuvers that I have ever been involved in. And I also want to say that we have received a commendation from the colonel. And I want to congratulate each and every one of you for doing your jobs well. Training pays off. And he walked back to the orderly room. Gasser and I went to our tent and sat down. My spool of wire was back on the truck. Goldberg's field telephone was back on the shelf. And not a single message has passed to company headquarters, to CP, to battalion, to anywhere. And that night, I learned something real big. Give me some hairy music, real hairy music. Hairy music, that ain't hairy music, man, that's gay Hairy music, real you-know-what dragon music. Yeah. Cha-cha-cha. It was that night that I learned, don't try to figure out anything. Just go along. Hold on. Ad-lib. Fake it. Because everybody else is ad-libbing. Everybody else is faking it. Lieutenants, colonels, generals, majors, corporals, PFCs, senators, presidents, vice presidents, premiers, all of them. All try to make out as best they can. All hiding in holes, sending up flares once in a while, and whispering, Hey, is it okay over there? How's it going? What do you mean you're lost? So am I. We can't both be lost. Somebody's got to know where it is. Yeah, waiting for Godot. Waiting for Gregory Peck. Waiting for Van Johnson to get on company Charlie's phone to tell us that the attack is going forward and everything is under control. And somewhere tonight, Goldberg is out there sitting behind the counter of his dad's delicatessen. Goldberg, who never once took his field telephone off his back. And here sits Shepard, who never unspooled an inch of his wire. And somewhere way, way out there, is Gasser with his roll of wire and Edwards with his telephone and our commanding officer. God only knows where he is. He never got the message through. <laughs> hey, speaking of messages, tomorrow night, I, I, I promise I'm going to do it. Tomorrow night. Uh, Barry Farber has been bugging me for about a year to do his favorite story on the Limelight Show. Just about a year ago, old Barry came down to see the show down at the limelight and wasn't embarrassing. Do you remember that night? Were you there that night, Corny? He was sitting in the front row, and I started to do the saga of Homer Croft, the fantastic bugler. 
And I started that story out, and by the time I was a third of the way into it, Barry was actually lying on the floor, right there in front of the audience, hitting his head on the table, screaming and yelling. He wound up with a, with a napkin over his... And they quietly carried him out and poured water on him for the last 15 minutes of the show. And so tomorrow night, the saga of Homer Croft. And if you'd like to make the limelight scene, be on hand. By the way, call right now. Call for... Is Fats down there? Call for Fairlawn Fats. If you'd like to make a reservation, it's Oregon 52212. And I will arrive tomorrow night at 1030 with a nest of robins in my hair. The least of all, you can do the same, friend. That's the least of all. <laughs> Bring it up big there. Let's salute them all out there.